Welcome to the podcast for Resurrection Lutheran Church in Fredericksburg, Texas. I'm Pastor Garrett Buvinghausen. Today is June 9th. It's Tuesday, June 9th, 2020. We had our weekly Bible study this uh, morning, and we are we continued on in uh, Hebrews chapter 7. Um, I do apologize for not posting anything last week. We had some technical difficulties with the recording, uh, but we cover the ground uh, that we needed to uh, in order for you to understand what we talked about last week in regards to um, Hebrews chapter 7, the first um, 10 chapters or so. Um, anyways, we uh, we got through about verse 19. I was a little overambitious, I will say. I was trying to get through all of chapter 7. Um, there's a lot here in Hebrews chapter 7 that um, is a bit redundant, uh, but there's a case being made by the author of Hebrews to um, make the argument of Jesus as the great high priest above all high priests um, in the heavenly sanctuary. And he's speaking to a bunch of Hebrews, um, people who are of Jewish descent, um, and there's the thought that many were, were returning to the temple worship in Jerusalem, and um, this is thought to be a argument for them not to return because there is nothing worth sacrificing for at the temple anymore because that has been superseded by the sacrifice of Christ and how he serves us now and serves on our behalf as our great high priest. So there's a lot of overlay. There's a lot of redundancy in chapter 7. So uh, we only got through about verse 19. I tried to get through all of chapter 7, but... Um, there's, there's just a lot here. Um, I do apologize if, if at some points it does seem s- sort of cyclical and you're thinking to yourself, ah, oh, just move on already. <laughs> but next week we will get through all of chapter 7. And um, if you have any questions about what has been taught here, um, if there are any things that need to be clarified, you're more than welcome to come join us on Bible study uh, Tuesday mornings at 10 a.m. here at Resurrection Lutheran in Fredericksburg. But... Um, if you can't make it and you'd like to ask questions, please feel free to get in touch with uh, get in touch with me. Um, you can find my contact information on our website. Our website is resurrectionfbg.org. That's resurrectionfbg.org. And without further ado, here is the recording for this morning's Bible study. By the way, um, a little bit of a do here. Um, <laughs> Uh, I apologize also again for the um, quality of the sound. Uh, our sanctuary is very lively in terms of acoustics. The sound bounces a lot. Um, you might not be able to hear certain people asking certain questions. I do my best to reiterate the question and the comment that's been made. Um, but, uh, you know, at some points you might have to find yourself turning up the volume a little bit to hear what other people are saying. Um, but, I just apologize in advance. Uh, when we get to move into our old Bible study space, the sound will get a lot better in terms of uh, the acoustics. It'll be a little bit tighter and won't have as much of the reverb and the echo and things like that. Okay, now, 
Without any further ado, here is our recording from our Bible study this morning on Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 19. Before we begin, though, let's begin with a word of prayer. So, the Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, grant that the birth of your only begotten Son in the flesh may set us free from the bondage of sin. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, so um, we're going to do a little bit of uh, kind of backtracking and, and seeing here a little bit the uh, Hebrews chapter 7, how it begins. Um, we're going to be looking a lot at what it means, what the priestly order of Melchizedek is, and why Jesus fills that role. And we talked a little bit last time about it, but we're going to look at it again. Um, that, uh, let me just read through Hebrews chapter 7. So if you want to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, verses 1 through 10. And I'll go ahead and just read that for you all. So, uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. For this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High, met Abraham, um, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the king's and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is, he is without father or mother or genealogy. Having neither, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but, but, excuse me, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest. He continues a priest. Oh, excuse me. He continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils, and those descendants of, of, uh, and those descendants of Levi, who, who receive the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his, his Descent from them um, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In one case, tithes are, are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might say that, that Levi himself, who 
receives tithes, paid tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when, when Melchizedek met him. All right, so um, we kind of went through it a little bit last time. So what is this? Here, let's ask some specific questions about here. So um, we know that Melchizedek in Genesis 14, um, we looked at last time, um, considering that nothing is said about Melchizedek in Genesis either before or after the three verses that we read in Genesis 14, um, there are two things about him that are pretty surprising, that he is not mentioned to have any genealogy, right? He has no beginning, no end, at least in the Jewish, in, in, the, um, in the sense of the Old Testament. You are judged in the Old Testament sense by who your father is, right? Um, who, your, who your parents are, uh, who you descend from, and that's what the, the author of Hebrews is getting at, right? That um, the priesthood of uh, the tribe that you could only get the priests from was which tribe? The Levites. Now, um, that's kind of interesting. It's, it's, it's this, this thing where the author of Hebrews is trying to establish this priesthood of Jesus Christ. And he's having, if he was just to appeal to the law, he'd have a problem. Because is Jesus from the tribe of Levi? No. Which tribe is Jesus from? Judah. Judah. He's from the tribe, of, he's from the royal tribe of Judah, where all the kings descend from. And there was a distinct separation between the kings and the priests in the Old Testament covenant. Um, but now... It's very interesting. The, the author of Hebrews is making this case that Jesus is a greater high priest. We looked in the past uh, couple chapters how he's saying he's a greater high priest because um, God himself, God the Father, has placed him in that role. He's, he, is, uh, he is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, he's using him it's nowhere else. Except for in Psalm 110, does the Bible ever talk about Melchizedek? Melchizedek is this mysterious figure that some, some interpret could even be the pre-incarnate Christ. But that's interpretation. It's not 100% clear. The author of Hebrews is making a strong connection between Jesus as the great high priest and Melchizedek, right? Sorry. That's all right. Um, we see that uh, he's, you see, he's without beginning and without end. You don't hear about his birth. You don't hear about his death. He lives forever in a sense. He's just there in this story. And then we see in Psalm 110, we'll get, we'll get into that more we get into chapter 7 here. But in Psalm 110, God uh, declares Jesus Christ the Son made flesh, you know, uh, to be in that priestly order. Um, the writer of Hebrews gives us some other information about Melchizedek. Well, let me see here real quick. Um, yeah, so in Genesis, if you were reading Hebrew, 
you would just understand what his name means, right? But in Hebrews, it translates it for us. In verse 2, what does it say about Melchizedek um, and his name and his title? Yeah, he's the king of, his, his name means king of righteousness. And then, but he's also the king of peace, the king of Salem, right? Um, and uh, that's a very interesting, distinct title. He holds both of those titles. In the covenant on Mount Sinai, those two offices were separated and held distinct from each other. But in Melchizedek, they are combined. Um, we do also see here that uh, in some ways, uh, in these first ten verses, remember how um, Melchizedek in some ways is greater than the uh, tribe of Levi and the priesthood descended through uh, through uh, excuse me, through Aaron, right? That the high priest could only come if they you 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 could only be a high priest if you were a descendant of which specific Levite? Aaron, Aaron, right? You had to be you had to be a direct descendant of him to be a high priest. You could be another priest assisting in the temple in some ways, but you had to be. But like, it's very interesting because the author of Hebrews says that even though. God established the Levites to serve in the temple. Melchizedek is greater because their father Abraham paid homage to, to God through Melchizedek. And, in some, and according to the genealogical understanding, Levi was still in the loins of Abraham. He was still yet to be descended from him. So um, he's making all this case here to strengthen the, the argument that Jesus is the great high priest, even though it's not within the law as was given on Mount Sinai. Right? Uh, God, is, God has made Jesus Christ the great high priest for all people, for all who believe. Not through the law given on Mount Sinai, but by direct divine uh, proclamation in Psalm 110. Um, and we'll see that a little bit more here. But that's, that's just a little bit of a recap for uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Um, let me see if there's any other questions here that I have for y'all. Um, no, that's about it. Maybe I have a quick question. Before we move on, we gotta let them get through. Is it kind of hot in here? Anyone else think so? I turned the air down over there. Is the air down over there? Can you check the down? Thanks. Okay. So we're gonna move on to uh, Hebrews chapter, still in chapter 7, verses 11 through 14, which reads Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. What further need would there have been for, for 
another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of 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 ah, excuse me, after the order of of Aaron. Excuse me. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection that with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Now, um, so, uh, let's see. So we know that if Jesus does not fit into the Levitical, uh, if Jesus does not fit into the into the Levitical order of priests, then what order of priests does he fit within? It's kind of obvious. We've been talking about it the whole time. Which order does he fit within? Melchizedek, yeah, he fits within the order of Melchizedek. These are pretty obvious, but it's all to go for the same purpose of uh, understanding who Jesus is as high priest, right? Um, we asked last time, I think, uh, Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. What prophecy concerning the Messiah was foretold about this tribe? We looked at Genesis 49, verse 10. You want to turn to that real quick? Genesis 49, verse 10, to see what prophecy concerning the Messiah was foretold about the tribe of Judah. So keep a bookmark in Hebrews chapter 7. We'll turn to Genesis 49, verse 10. That reads, uh, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Right? So what kind of prophecy about the Messiah is given here in verse 10? Genesis 49, verse 10. What is it saying about the Messiah? What's it saying? Something about a scepter, right? What is a scepter good for? Who usually had the scepter in the ancient world? King. Yeah, the king, right? Right. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Um, so yeah, so we see that Judah is the kingly line. It's just reinforced there, okay? Um, let's see if there's anything else that... Oh, this is another thing. Here we go. So, the authority of God. This is all talking about the priestly order. That the priests, what sort of special 
things did they do for the people besides receiving tithes and offerings and things like that? What was the job of the priest? It's very important in the, the Old Testament temple, tabernacle. Yeah, the sacraments, the sacrifices, the direct communication. The sacraments, the sacraments. They were sacramental. They were sacramental because they did convey forgiveness of sins. They were a means of grace for the people. That the priests would be the uh, the intermediaries. I guess they would they would act on behalf of the people before God, offering uh, the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, the wave offerings, these different things. For the sake of the people, so that their uh, their sins would be forgiven, because God had promised to do so. Um, so they had a very important job. Now, to follow the argument of the uh, the author of Hebrews in chapter seven here, so let's go back to chapter seven in Hebrews. We need to understand two assumptions that were probably taken for granted by him and his congregation, okay? So the first assumption is about the role of God's law in the Old Testament establishing the priesthood. Um, the priests didn't act on their own authority, okay? They didn't just show up one day and say, we want to be priests, and here we go. It was the law that was given to Moses that authorized the priests to act as God's agents in the divine service. And it's very interesting, Dr. Kleinig in his commentary, to ties that temple worship with the divine service. That it's not just that they did their own thing in Jerusalem at the temple, and we do our own thing that's separate and distinct, okay? It's not divided. It carries over in a certain sense. Sure, we don't have bulls and goats and things that we bring in to cut their throats and spread the blood on the altar and things like that. We don't do that. But we don't do that because of what has been done in Christ, right? The perfect sacrifice of the Lamb of God, who is Jesus Christ, has been made, and that blood has been shed for all people for all time. We don't have to do the Old Covenant ceremonially and things like that that they did in the temple. But that doesn't mean there's a disconnect. That the divine service was established by God and carries through today in what takes place in the divine service in receiving the body and blood of Christ on the altar. Right? Uh, it's just through the sacrifice that has been made once for all, for all people. Right? Um, and it's unique in that way. Um, so we see that um, the priests act, acted as God's, God's agents in the divine service through the law. Right? The law said, you do this, you do that. This is how it's done. You know, take, take the grain offering and throw it on on the fire, take this and do that, take that and do this, right? And without the law, they had no authority to act, right? Their authority was mediated. They didn't do this on their own authority. They did this on the authority of God, okay? Something to keep in mind that whoever was hearing this first already had that in mind. So we have to get that in our minds that 
the authority of the priests was mediated through the law of God. Number two, the second assumption is that God can, can, can um, intervene more immediately to establish a new royal and priestly dynasty and a new form of the divine service. Right? Just because God established the law for the people to follow and to obey does not mean that he is completely bound by that law because then the law would be greater than God in a certain way. Can you follow my thinking or can you follow the thought on that? God had the authority to establish the law and he had the authority to do something that surpasses that law. Right? I mean, he is all-powerful. He does these things. And he did these things, and we're going to see how, okay? Um, in fact, let's take a look at how the assumption can be made that God can establish um, a new royal and priestly dynasty. Uh, let's turn to Zechariah chapter 6 to see this. You all know where Zechariah is. Zechariah is one of the minor prophets. Zechariah, yeah, Zechariah is right after Haggai and right before Malachi. Yeah. Zechariah 6, verses 11 through 13. Zechariah 6, verses 11 through 13, state, um, Take from them silver and gold, and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of God. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal Honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Now that's God's decree saying that this person who's a priest shall sit on the throne. Right? This, this is a more, um, this is a way that God can decree these things for the sake of his will. Right? Um, and he has the power to do this. He doesn't do it willy-nilly, and he doesn't do it, he doesn't do it arbitrarily, right? Um, but he, he has the power to do it. Um, and he does do this, right? That uh, he does this even more greatly through Jesus Christ, which is what the author of Hebrews is getting at. That he takes the person who is born of the flesh, Jesus Christ, he's born in the flesh in the line of Judah, but he is also high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Okay? So, those are some things we have to just have to get in our minds. That the priests, the Levitical priesthood acted according to the law. But God can work in ways to fulfill his will that supersede that law in order for his perfect will to be done. Okay? That sounds kind of... Uh, I don't know, that can sound a little radical in some ways, but uh, 
Do you have a question? Was yeah. Yeah, go ahead. So basically, in comparing the Melchizedek, it's just backing up the fact that Jesus didn't just come out of nowhere with like claiming this authority that hadn't been seen or done or or used. You know, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, that God established that order through Melchizedek immediately when it, back in Genesis 14, where um, so yeah. This is just establishing that Jesus doesn't just claim this for himself. It is declared and placed upon him, right? That uh, we see in Psalm 110, which we've seen a little bit here, but we can see, if you want to turn, turn to Psalm 110 to put a little bookmark there, because we're going to be turning there. Uh, Psalm 110, we'll see also where Melchizedek is mentioned. So it, it's interesting because Psalm 110 is a psalm of David, right? And David, you know, King David. Where this is where Jesus also used his, he, he used this verse to establish, you know, said, to say, how can David say, um, the Lord says to my Lord, you know, how can the Lord say these things unless it's speaking about the Son, right? But he's, he goes on here in verse 4 of Psalm 110 says, um, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That the Lord is making this proclamation. The Lord God is making this proclamation. He is making it directly. Um, and he is doing it um, for the sake of the whole world. Um, and he's creating something new here built upon what has already been done. Um, I think there's somebody at the door. Just wait. I don't know who. Whoever has a key, you know, let that guy in. <laughs> All right. Um, so just put a, put a little bookmark there in Psalm 110 because we're going to reference that a lot here. Um, so yeah, the author is doing this to say that Jesus didn't come out of nowhere, that in order for there to be a change in the law, as we see there from verses, uh, Hebrews chapter 7, I'm going back and forth here, so I've got these nice bookmarks here. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 14, we see, right, that um, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well, right? That these things can't just take place unless there's a change. Um, and there has been a change, not to any human being, but, or should I say, not to any human being alone, but the one who is both man and God, Jesus Christ, right? That there has been a change that, is, uh, that has been decreed and sworn to by God in Psalm 110, specifically to Jesus Christ. Um, let's see here. Yeah, here we go. So then, 
Yeah, so the new basis of um, the priesthood is given by God with his oath of appointment in Psalm 110, verses, verse 4, right? You shall be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, verse 13, the second, the second inference from Psalm 110, verse 4 is that this, this oath is spoken to a person who belongs to a different tribe than that of Levi. Okay? Um, no one from this tribe, the royal tribe of Judah, was ever appointed to officiate as priest at the altar for burnt offering in the daily service at the tabernacle or even at the temple. Right? Um, so not even in the more minor, which you would quote-unquote minor sense of offering the... There were sacrifices made every day in the temple, in the tabernacle. And um, the sacrifices made every day were done by the priests, not necessarily the high priests, right? They're, we're getting into the distinctions of the priesthood here. But... Even on the smaller scale, any, like, anything that was done in the temple, officially, was only by those who were in that tribe of, of, of Levi. Okay? Um, let's move on to verse 14. Uh, so we got through verse 14, sorry. Right? Did we get through verse 14? Yes. Okay. Thank you. See, I've got, I've got this commentary here that goes through a different set of verses than this. That goes through a different set of verses. I'm just trying to keep things straight. Right? Um, verses 15 through 19 in Hebrews chapter 7 states, This becomes even more evident... When another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is, for it is, excuse me, for it is witnessed of him. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We saw that from Psalm 110, right? So, um, verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope was introduced. Or a better hope... A better hope it, uh, excuse me, is introduced through which we draw near to God. So, even though, let's see, uh, let me ask this question. Um, This is kind of interesting, right? It says, A former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. 
What do y'all think of that? That, that? that the law at some point in time was useless and worthless, right? It was because of its weakness and uselessness. It's set aside. What, what makes the law weak, weak and useless in this case? Jesus. Yeah, Jesus does. <laughs> what law are we talking about here specifically? Yeah, specifically, which law besides just the Old Testament law? Because I wish I had a whiteboard here, because I'd show, I think I've shown you this before, maybe, where you have, it's kind of a Venn diagram. You have, just have, to, you have to get it in your mind here. There's a circle here, and it's the ceremonial law. And there's a circle here that's the moral law, and they cross over at some point in time. Now, we're speaking specifically about the ceremonial law, that is that division within the Old Covenant um, through Moses um, that in the ceremonial law, what sort of things do you have? You have the temple sacrifice, you have priestly acts, you have the, the intercession on behalf of the people, right? The moral law is what has to do with what sort of things? More like the Ten Commandments, right? You shall, you know... Um, like an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, that, that, that sort of thing. Um, and at some point, they overlap, right? They have, they have something to do with each other. They're, they're not wholly distinct from each other. So which law is weak and useless now? Is it the moral law, or is it the ceremonial law? It's the ceremonial law that has become weak and useless now because of what has been done in the sacrifice of Christ and his pouring out of his blood for the entire world, right? But in the Old Testament, the sacrifices were all symbolic. Okay. In Christ died, it was the true sacrifice for once and for all, forever. Okay. And no longer were any of those Testament sacrifices required. Okay. So it was only symbolic. It didn't do anything. That's what you're saying? Well, yeah. The sacrifices <laughs> were symbolic. They didn't do anything. Christ did it. And all, this, all the, the symbolisms of the Old Testament were just pointing to Christ. Right. When he died, he forgave all sins, both past and future and present. Yeah. The sins were still there, even though the sacrifices were Right. It, it, let's make this clear that it wasn't in, in the Old Testament temple sacrifices, it was not the fact that they spilled the blood of the goats and the bulls and that blood itself, you know, that the life is in the blood, right? That's what we learned. That's, that's why the Hebrews should not have eaten anything with blood still remaining in the carcass or in the meat or whatever, right? It, well, everything was well done. You know, I like I like my steaks medium rare now, thanks to my wife. And but that was not nope, can't can't have the blood because the life is in the blood. And we see even all the way from the back from from the fall that blood is required for the forgiveness of sins. But it's not that uh, it's it's not that um, 
the bull that it, the bull itself, the goat itself, the doves themselves that were sacrifices and their blood were shed. It's not that they were special in in and of themselves. What it was, and you know, I'm still learning more about this because the Old Testament covenant is still pretty foreign to me in all of the intricacies that go into it. Um, but what it was was that it wasn't that you just did this and it was a matter of being done and over and done with. There was a matter of faith tied to this, that God has promised the forgiveness of sins attached to this sacrifice, right? Right. He commanded it. We ought to do it. That You had to do it at that point in time. But it wasn't wholly symbolic. What it was, and I, and I, think, I think what you're getting at and is, is that it was pointing to the perfect sacrifice that was to come in Jesus Christ. It wasn't 100% wholly symbolic because a lot of times people use that language now to say, you know, well, the divine service... What happens now with the body and blood of Christ, it's only symbolic of the body and blood of Christ. That Jesus Christ died and his true body and blood were sacrificed on the cross, you know, over a thousand years ago. And that's where the true body and blood was sacrificed, you know. Here, what's happening here, it's only bread and wine because it's only symbolic. So we have to be careful that you're right, that it was symbolic in the sense that it was pointing to the sacrifice that Christ would make on the cross. But there was a promise attached to it that the forgiveness of sins would be there. So it's like a both and kind of thing. Right? But that was in the Old Testament. That's where you got the forgiveness of sin. Yeah. The actual sacrifice didn't do it. God did it because you right. were doing what he told you to do. And so God gave you the forgiveness of sin. And you were doing it in faith. Right. Right. You were doing it in faith that God would... Would, would be good on his promise. That you were doing the sacrifice not just because it's like, well, it's written, got to do it. Don't really believe that it does anything, but I'm just doing it because that's what God told me to do. You're doing it because you know that God is good on his promise, that he will forgive your sins uh, through this sacrifice. Yeah. Which is different from the pagans right. who would say, let me sacrifice this goat to Baal, or even they would sacrifice their own children. To Baal, um, so that because they knew that that was what would appease their God and make that God give them what they wanted, right? That's how they got the gods to listen to them was that they would sacrifice things, and that's not how our God works. That's not how the one true God works, I should say, right? He he comes to us, he gives us his promise, and we act in faith as a result. Even if you don't, the sins are still forgiven. They just don't do you any good. What's that? How, so explain that. But God says to sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, and you perform the sacrifice, even if you don't believe, your sins are still forgiven, but it doesn't do you any good. Just like Christ died for everybody. Everybody's sins are forgiven. Yeah. But if you don't believe it, it doesn't do you any good. It's worthless. Well, because you're still in your sin. Yeah. It, so, so your sins are, the proclamation is made that the promise is given, your sins will be forgiven. You don't receive the benefits of that promise if you don't believe. Just like with baptism, if you're baptized, 
you are washed in the water that is tied to the word that is the holy name of God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But, and the forgiveness of sins is conveyed to you, but you don't receive the benefits of it if you don't believe. Right? You can, you can reject that, that gift, that promise. It's there for you, but you can reject it and you don't receive benefits. Right? So I think that makes it a little more clear because the forgiveness of sins is promised. It has been achieved. It has been accomplished. But you don't receive the benefit of that if you don't believe. Correct. I think that's okay, good. Yeah. Um, but we see here, going back to Hebrews, well, this is a good discussion. I like this discussion. Um, going back to Hebrews, we see that the law, the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness for the law made nothing perfect. What does that mean, the law made nothing perfect? I thought the law of God was perfect and good. So, what's the problem? Right. What's not good? The sin. Right. The people. The flesh, the blood, the people that are supposed to adhere to the law. That the law is perfect and good. The law delivers what's good that God desires for his people. The people are the things that are not able to live up to the perfect law of God. Right? Right, the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And that's an interesting thing. They did a, a good job here. I, th I think this is where it is, where um, it's put in the present tense that, let me turn here and see if I can... I know that Hebrews, Greek, like, like the Greek that's presented in Hebrews is tough to uh, read just on the fly. But what is that? Verse, verse uh, 19. Right. So, um, and get some. Hope is introduced. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's a present tense. So here's, here's a little free Greek lesson for y'all. Because <laughs> it's going to do you a lot of good, right, to know Greek. Um, a free Greek lesson is that whenever you see something like a participle, and a participle is something like, you know, having been done, the one doing this, you know, this being done, that when you see a present tense participle, it doesn't, it, it means ongoing. The action is ongoing, right? That, uh, huh? Look at verse 22. Verse 22. Uh, because the result he has become, he has become the guarantee of the Well, I'm looking at verse 19 right now. I know you <laughs> That is, no, verse, verse 22 is very important. No, <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to explain this on verse 19, that um, a better hope is introduced, not was, but is. 
that that being present tense means that it's continually happening, then the better hope is continually being given to us. And we saw last time, who is that hope? Jesus Christ, right? He is the one who acts. He is the one who does. You know, um, and we're going to see a little bit more here that with, um, by the way, how are we doing on time? All right, we're doing pretty good. That when, when I as the pastor stand up here and uh, pronounce the absolution, I say, you know, in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I'm not doing that because Christ is absent. I'm not an ambassador uh, in the sense that he's not here. But he is acting through me and through all pastors who pronounce that grace to the people of God. Um, that Jesus, as the high priest, is acting whenever this takes place. He is the one doing these things through the, through the pastors and uh, to the people who are a royal priesthood themselves, right? And we talked a little bit about this. We'll get more into it in the rest of chapter 7, but that, um, remember when we went through grace upon grace and how he was talking about the sacrifices in the temple and that the priests would make sacrifice, they would burn incense, they would make the prayers for the people. Um, we as a royal priesthood of believers, right? And I want to make that very clear. Um, it's the royal priesthood only through Jesus Christ that we as believers can appeal to God directly, can appeal to him as, as individual priests giving sacrifice and thanksgiving and praise. Um, and uh, the pastor is a member of that royal priesthood himself, but he is also set apart for the specific liturgical duties of, um, of providing the sacraments, the means of grace to the people, right? In some ways, yeah, uh, you know, the, that the high priest works through the pastors, right? Um, and we as a priesthood of all believers become members of this royal priesthood, and we'll look We'll see, we'll see more there. Um, this is interesting where uh, Dr. Kleinig here says, uh, Jesus perfects the congregation by qualifying them for service together with him as their high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. Remember, we talked about how he ascended and now he presents, he represents us in front of God the Father, right? Um, as, the, as the great high priest. Um, he said, it, it does not just, yeah, that is God's goal for them, that he does this. And that, that the congregation joins Jesus in the sanctuary that way. It does, it, it does not just mean, as many claim, that he brings them individually into a right personal relationship with God through the cleansing of their conscience. He gives them corporate access to God by their, by their participation in the divine service. So that is something, and, and we'll kind of stop here because we're running out of time.
But we'll, we'll stop here at the end of verse, well, yeah, we'll stop here at the end of 19 to just kind of drive this point home that um, when we, knowing that Jesus is our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary, he perfects the congregation, that is all of us who gather in faith, right, around his word and sacraments. He perfects the congregation by qualifying us. He does this. He qualifies us for service together with him. With him as the high priest in the heavenly sanctuary. And that is so much more important. I think that might be a little controversial among some folks. Is that we talk a lot about um, Jesus' work as the high priest interceding for us to bring us into a personal relationship with God. That is true, right? That is true. We now have a right relationship. What was broken is now fixed in Jesus Christ. But, in some, but what's even greater than that is that because of that, now we can join Jesus as our high priest in service to God in the divine service. And in his service to us, it's this um, relationship that now that we have a right relationship with God, it's not that we just go on our merry way and say, oh, well, life's good and I'm just going to go on. But it's one of those things that uh, if you have received this great gift of salvation and eternal life, when you receive a great gift in general, what ought, what ought you do? Huh? Yeah, you thank them. <laughs> I said, thank you so much. And in some ways, you show your gratitude. Right? Um, that uh, when we sing in the divine service, you know, it is right to give him thanks and praise. Right? It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, Holy Lord, Almighty Father, everlasting God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right? Who did all these things for us. Therefore... With angels and archangels, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, holy, 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 right? Um, that in, in the divine service is where we, we have the opportunity and the privilege to give thanks and praise to God and to receive that gift um, according to his promise and not our work. And then receive that gift of life and salvation in the sacrament, all right? Um, we're going to stop there. I knew I was too ambitious to try to get through all of chapter 7 because there's too much there. But this is a good place to stop right now at verse 19. Um, but we will, we, we will get to that later. Um, uh, before, before we close, though, let's, let's, uh, I do have an announcement afterwards, but uh, kind, of, kind of an update for you all. Um, but before we close... We'll get to you in just a second. We're going to pray real quick, and then you can have your comment, okay? So let's pray. Um, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. 
Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.